Do you recall a day where everything clicked into place, where the world seemed to move in perfect harmony and every task flowed effortlessly? Introducing you to London Nootropics, adaptogenic coffee blends, thoughtfully crafted to elevate and balance your day, delivering all the perks of your beloved coffee, plus the incredible benefits of adaptogens, which also help to dial down those less than loved side effects like jitters, anxiety, and that all too familiar crash. A premium mix of medicinal mushroom extracts and other potent adaptogens, each blend is targeted for a specific purpose depending on what you need. Flow enhances your mental clarity and focus. Zen is your go-to for stress relief and balance. And Mojo offers that clean, natural energy lift. It's the synergy between caffeine and adaptogens that works wonders, allowing us to relish the caffeine buzz without the drawbacks, ensuring a smooth, sustained energy flow. My top pick is the Zen Blend. It's a lifesaver for those of us who are caffeine sensitive and not to mention comes in the most charming packaging. So why not elevate your coffee experience with London New Tropics? Discover the perfect blend, find your flow and enjoy an exclusive 20% discount with the code SaturnReturns at LondonNewTropics.com. Hello everyone and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. Today is the second part of my conversation with the one and only Zach Bush. I enjoyed this conversation so much. There is so much wisdom in what he has to say that it's the kind of episodes that you can listen to again and again and again, and there will always be something new that you can take from it. In this part of the conversation, we get into our relationship with the earth and the sort of complexity of how we are essentially in an abusive bond, he said, with nature. We are abusing it. And it's part of our journey now, I'd say, as a collective to heal this relationship. And that's where Zach's work really centralizes. What I found really interesting from this conversation was how Zach feels that at the heart of this is this idea that it all stems from our human fear of not being enough, of not feeling worthy. And that then creates the sort of scarcity and this disconnect between us and the earth, which I found really, really fascinating. And I think that that's something we can all relate to on a on a personal level, but also understand that and the impact that has collectively. What I also really found interesting because of Zach's work at Farmer's Footprint and all of the stuff that he's doing to try and heal this relationship we have with nature, this concept that Earth itself is struggling to breathe under the weight of human impact. I think we can all feel that. And when people say, you know, that they're feeling anxious about the future and this sort of baseline uncomfortable feeling that I know because I've spoken to a lot of people regardless of how into the space they are they just feel it and I think that that's why we know that the way we are operating at the moment and have been is not sustainable and that something has to change and that's something that we have to do on an individual level but we also you know astrologically speaking This is a time where the systems that govern us are disintegrating. And I think we are all waking up to this now when we're recognizing that things don't need to operate the way that they have. We we 
assume these truths that they are absolute, but actually there so many of them are constructs. And so we're in this very interesting paradigm shift at the moment. And I, I do wholeheartedly believe that Zach is one of the people that's going to lead the way for us on a global level to fully not only understanding it, but to healing and to paving the way for a different type of future. One of Zach's main missions is to reconnect people with nature and to heal our relationship with the earth because he recognized that a lot of health and disease-related issues that we have is to do with the way that we consume and make food. Food is no longer our medicine, it's pharmaceutical chemicals and, and drugs. And so he created Farmer's Footprint to help heal this. It's all around regenerative agriculture to help cultivate soil, human and planetary health. To support this, you can enter at bit.ly forward slash Farmer's Footprint UK prize draw. And it's £25 donation to enter. And... You might win a free course, the Saturn Returns course, and a one-on-one -on -one call with me. Wouldn't that be lovely? So if you guys want to enter, there is a link in the show notes. And best of luck. Pausing this for a moment because I've got something exciting to share. Today's episode is brought to you by London Nootropics, the masters of crafting adaptogenic coffee blends that don't just taste heavenly, but they also boost your energy the right way. Now we all love that zesty kick from caffeine. It snaps us awake by outsmarting those sleepy adenosine receptors in our brain. But here's the kicker. Caffeine can hike up our cortisol, giving us the jitters or anxiety, particularly if you're like me and caffeine sensitive. But that's where the magic of adaptogen steps in. These natural heroes level out our cortisol, smoothing the energy boost from caffeine without the downsides. Plus, while caffeine tends to rush in and fade away, leaving you crashing, adaptogens extend that energy, keeping you vibrant without reaching for another cup. So if you want to find your most productive self with Lion's Mane and Rhodiola in their flow blend, Cordyceps in Mojo is known to increase our aerobic capacity, oxygen flow and boost ATP. So it's perfect before a run or workout or when you're feeling fatigued. So if you're intrigued and you want to dive deeper into their blend secrets and discover which adaptogens sync with you, try visiting their website. And because you're part of the Saturn Returns family, enjoy a special 20% off at London Nootropics Adaptogenic Coffee with the code SATINRETURNS. Enjoy! And you also mentioned something that I'd like to dive into a little bit, which is the virus in terms of people saying that bacteria is good or bad or anything is good or bad. You speak about viruses that how many exist and how there's this idea as if there's 10 bad ones or this particular bad one that we all went through that is a threat to life on earth so would you be able to sort of demystify that a little bit for our audience <laughs> i'll mystify it for you because <laughs> uh, the numbers are again mystical in, in nature um well i guess we can begin real quick at what is a virus a virus is simply a genetic possibility it's just a little gene uh, a series of nucleotides that are coded into a little little strand of dna or rna 
and it can travel in an envelope of, uh, of kind of like a cell membrane that envelopes it and protects it from the environment so it can travel great distances uh, as a protected piece of genetic information. But the whole belief system that viruses can take over your cellular system and proliferate until you, you know, each cell blows up with the virus. I don't know if you've seen pictures of that, but that's kind of like virus 101 in all of our biology classes is viruses take over the machinery of cell, cell proliferation and, and reproduce themselves inside your body until all your cells rupture and they can kill you and blah, blah, blah. That's about 40-year-old science, and what we've found out in the last 40 years is that that decision to t take a, a gene sequence and turn it into a protein or replicate it is the most controlled decision in biology, such that it takes 200, basically, agreements at the molecular level to go ahead and make that virus into a protein and repeat the and reproduce it, and then decide what you're going to do with it. And ultimately, what you're going to do with the gene is either integrate it into your own genome or use it to change the expression of genes within your body. And so the, a virus is not a living thing. It's not a bacteria. It's, it's, it's not, it doesn't have any life within it. It, it can't re reproduce itself. It can't create energy. It's just a packet of information. And yet we've come to believe that viruses are attacking the human body. The human body has to decide to express that, that new genetic code. And when you start making new proteins in your body that have never been made in there before, there's going to be a certain subset of those that are going to create an immune reaction. And so it can create the experience of a fever with your immune system having to generate heat and temperature as it starts to adopt this new information and new proteins into the body. But that new gene isn't bad for you. It's just new genetic information that your body has decided it wants to make. Mm -hmm. It has to be that volition. The volition of creating a virus into a new protein structure within your body is very volitional and it's coming from within every cell to make that decision. Do I want this gene or not? Do I want the new protein that this gene will make or not? And so when we have a common cold or a pneumonia caused by a virus, it's not the virus causing the cold. It's our immune system's reaction to new information. We now understand that the genome is a conglomeration of viral inputs. The human genome is quite small uh, compared to other life forms around us. Uh, a, a fruit fly has 13,000 genes. And a flea, a tiny little animal that can jump like 40 times its height, pretty cool, has 30,000 genes. And the human has 20,000 genes. So we sit between a fruit fly and a flea, but frankly a little bit closer to the fruit fly of genetic complexity. We're very simple genetically, 20,000 genes. And we now know that 55% of those genes, and probably a lot more than that, but we've now identified 55% of those genes as being direct inserts of RNA or DNA viruses into the genome of life that allowed for the first mammals to occur. To move from reptiles and birds, which you know deliver an egg, and then the egg is this protected space that life can come out of. And so moving from egg birth to live birth at the moment that mammals were created, that was the result of a whole bunch of viral updates to uh, the, the avian, you know, kind of bird-like wow. uh, genome. And so they were critical updates that allowed us to build a pl placenta and things like this. And so we needed all this new genetic information to be able to do live birth. What's and gone wrong for us to view it so differently? The original wound of humanity, as I've kind of been digging down on that for a long time, is why why are we so 
human in our behavior? Why, why are we so against everything? Why do we have all this judgment towards everything? Why do we call everything bad or good that isn't? And by and large, we call everything bad that isn't us, right? And, and we do this down to a really annoying level of like, you know, you're sitting on a subway and you're a bunch of strangers and you immediately decide they're all must be idiots and you're the only intelligent <laughs> being in this place because they're obviously not on your bandwidth and they're not moving like you're moving and they're reading that stupid book. That person's wasting their time. That's a dumb book. You know, like the stupid things that you will think about other people around you. So why is that? What What is it about us that makes us so judgmental and so so derogatory towards life around us, whether it be a virus or another human? Uh, why the effort to call it good and bad? Why the effort to... And I think it has to do with this original belief that we got separated from nature. And it's in all of our, our mythic stories from almost every religion, there was a moment when we suddenly were kicked out of the garden or we were you know, divorced from, you know, some God came along, got angry at us and pitched us out of heaven, you know, whatever it is. And so we have this deep insecurity in us that we weren't good enough for nature. Mm. And then we got othered. And in the othering, we developed the need for an ego because it's terrifying to be separate from when suddenly alone. And so we developed an energy field that we, we might call an ego that we all share. And so I don't think I have my ego and you have your ego. That's just a general energy system that we can all tap into and use as a shield to protect us against the fear that we're not enough. And that's what I learned a lot in my time in the ICU is that the most common thing that was coming back to me when people would die and then come right back is they would come back in this near bliss state and they'd have this almost far off look in their eyes and they would look at me, but it felt like they were looking straight through me or seeing something that wasn't my body, and they would look straight through me, and it is eerily identical to when an infant looks at you coming out of the womb. A newborn infant will look at you in such a startling way because you can feel them seeing something that's not your body. Well, isn't it that they, I heard that they look slightly above your head? They can look slightly above your head. In the case of my son, he looked straight into me, and you know I had that cosmic experience of being fully seen. And they, they can look above you or around you and you will still feel more seen than anything else. And you will feel like you're seeing something that you've never seen before as well. And so that exchange also can happen in this near-death comeback when somebody's suddenly coming back into the body with this, this other perceptive quality or perceptive capacity remembered. And now they're looking at you as if an infant was looking at you and they're coming from source and seeing you differently. And the thing that they said most often to me is, that was the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. I suddenly felt fully accepted. Mm -hmm. And people from all walks of life saying that same thing at all ages, 18-year-olds dying, 88-year-olds dying in the ICU on the same day, I heard the same thing as I suddenly felt completely accepted, mm -hmm. which means the original wound of being human that we all share is some sort of universal experience I am not enough. I am and not accepted. And you think that comes, that's a very deep one because... You, perhaps I'm paraphrasing, but the, you kind of describe the relationship we have with nature as having become a sort of abusive one that we take advantage of it. We're sort of selfish with it. Where do you think that stems from? Well, this kind of gets back to like every elementary school 
you know, experience. The bully on the on the playground is the most insecure person there, right? And so in their effort to show that they're tough or show that they belong, they abuse everybody around them. That's what we are on this planet right now. We are the most abusive species here because we're so insecure that we don't belong here, that we, we're not enough, that we're not loved, that we're, we don't belong to nature. And so we have this deep fear within us. And so we act like the bully here. And so we have to pound our chest and kill everything that's bigger than us and make sure that we're the toughest and we're the smartest and believe that we're at some sort of pinnacle of, of intelligence, life, spiritual import. So we create these vast religious belief systems that says we're the most important thing in the cosmos and we are loved more by God than anything else in the, in the cosmos. And actually I'm a colonialist. And so I'm going to go travel somewhere distant and I'm going to go find some primitive people. And I'm going to tell them my God is, is more better than their God. And I'm more loved than them. So I'm going to rape, pillage and take everything away. Cause your God's not as good as my God. Like we do this <laughs> stuff over and over and over again through human history because we are so insecure. And so in our insecurity, we grab onto this defense mechanism and this justification system of judgments and value systems of good, bad, dumb, smart, blah, blah, blah. And at the same time, the result of being separate from everything is this deep fear of scarcity. Mm -hmm. And when we're coming from a scarcity mentality, we, in the egoic state, develop the belief of ownership so that we can feel secure. And so the concept of owning life is ludicrous. And, and we do this in every single iteration of our lives. And in that scarcity and the fear of not enough, we become very extractive and destructive. And so our species is behaving as if we are separate from everything and therefore need to own it and everything we can get our hands on and therefore take it away from everybody else so nobody else can have our stuff. And, and this is now the human condition at, at large. And we've played this out for tens of thousands of years. And now here we are at the pinnacle moment of our own demise for all of the grabbing that we've done, for all the extraction and destruction and killing that we've done around us in, in fear of, of not being connected to everything. And so now we're at this pinnacle moment of either we change or we die. And it's a really lovely time to be alive because the sheer potential that now exists and the idea that we could lose judgment and start to be present and realize everything that's alive is on deep purpose for it is here. And whether it be a leaf or a river or an ocean, polar bear, whatever the heck you're in love with right now, that thing is so real. Therefore, there is no good and bad in this system. There's only the expression of life. And if we put ourselves in the resonance frequency of life is the purpose and life drives for biodiversity at every single moment it breathes, and it does biodiversity through adaptation. And the more biodiversity that's there, the faster it can adapt and the more resilience it has and the more it can overcome. And now if we as humans start to realize, oh my gosh, this is the life that's coming through us. It is biodiversity that's speaking through me in my intelligence or whatever it might hold. That is what I now move with in this cosmic moment of being alive right now is I am an ecosystem and I am part of the ecosystem and I could align my efforts such that more life occurs around me. And so in the hug that I can give somebody that I just met or in the efforts towards, you know, planting a, a, a basil plant in my backyard or whatever the heck I'm putting my hands to at that moment, if it's nurturing more life into this universe right now, then I've aligned myself with the energy of all of life, maybe throughout the whole cosmos, but certainly life here on this planet Earth right now. And so I come into resonance and I get more powerful. I get more energy given to me by this nature. And so there's this beautiful feedback loop so that when I die, I will be beaming light out of every 
cell in my body as I take those couple of last breaths because I will be so physically aligned with all of the spiritual and energetic energy that would be in a soul that's expressing itself in this body right now. I think you're quite a unique individual, I mean, just generally, but in that you view this pinnacle that we're at as a positive and an exciting moment. It feels to me that everything we're discussing, the the world that we exist in right now with tech in the space that it's at, with AI developing at this rapid speed, that that is a manifestation of this disconnection we have with nature and how we're trying to replicate nature and in our sort of own way. But that seems to be a, a real threat to the human species. And a lot of people are very scared about where things are going to go. So how can the average person try and kind of make a difference or to change or to adopt some of your mentality when we're being shoved or forced into this world that's so disconnected from our natural state in many ways? Our relationship to technology or our definitions or concepts of technology is probably another place that we have a huge opportunity to evolve. It's a bit of a dualism in my mind right now. As to, there's two paths we can go kind of on the macro level of being humans. We can decide that humanity is against nature and we need technology to save us from nature. Therefore, we're going to need new drugs, new vaccines, new robots, new AI to extend our capacity as humans so that we can survive in the cosmos. We need spaceships that we can go to Mars so that when we kill Earth, there's another planet for us to go to. Uh, we're going to try to figure out how to, you know, do, you know, telecommunications so that we can see if there's life out there in the universe so that we can communicate with something out there. And, you know, we, we do these really extreme things and out of fear of death rather than just becoming alive right now and becoming less damaging. And so there's that technological application of or the application of technology out of fear, guilt or shame of being human. And we see this of like, oh my gosh, we're destroying the planet with CO2 emissions. So we should create a technology that sucks CO2 out of the atmosphere so that it's not causing global warming. Except that when we stopped producing CO2, the CO2 kept going up exactly at the same rate on planet Earth. So when we stopped all the air travel, we stopped all the things, locked down the entire planet, CO2 kept going up exactly the same rate. We'd stopped fossil fuel burning at a level that we had never stopped fossil fuel burning at, and yet there was not a ditzel of evidence that we had changed the course of CO2 accumulation in the atmosphere. And so we are on course, regardless of human behavior, for this big turnover of life to happen. And it turns out that CO2 is, is the very blood force of this planet. It is the way in which we bring energy onto this planet so that life can spring forth. And we've demonized, just like the viruses, we demonize CO2, not realizing that the CO2 accumulating in the atmosphere right now is the result not of too much CO2, but of a failure to breathe in. The earth can't take a, an inspiration right now because her lungs are the soils of the planet and we have killed those with chemical agriculture. And so we have created a planet with emphysema, end-stage emphysema. It cannot take a breath in. No matter how much CO2 is in the atmosphere, it can't breathe it in. But the moment humans stop their chemical agriculture, the planet is going to recover within two or three years to take the deepest breath it's taken ever 
because there's actually more CO2 available in the, in the atmosphere right now than any time in planetary history, perhaps, because humans have innovated technology to pull the oil out of the center of the earth and burn that into CO2 in the atmosphere. And so there's now more CO2 above earth than maybe ever before. And so it's a very exciting moment that the next breath that this planet takes after our extinction effort stops, whether we go extinct or we simply just stop being destructive on her lungs, she will recover that lung function almost immediately and she will take a deep breath in and it will become the greenest planet we've ever seen mm. in a moment. It will happen so fast that we can't even believe in. So all this desperate news of like oceans rising and planet warming and all that, all of that will become an old story when she takes her first big breath in. And so all we have to do is put all of our ingenuity into restoring the function of her lungs. And most of what that involves is stop doing stuff and allow nature to do its thing. And so my nonprofit Project Biome has got an idea of let's align ourselves with the natural systems that will make her take her next breath and they're already preparing. And it's the keystone species that are mounting the, the army that will help her take her next breath. And one of those keystone species is the elephant. In Botswana and northern South Africa over the last decade, 250,000 extra elephants have proliferated. Quarter million elephants. Elephants never over-proliferate -prol their food system. They don't have a predator. So they always match their food system with the number of babies they have, etc. Those calves of those elephants now proliferating at this extreme rate seem to be preparing for something. And they've demolished the entire forest of Botswana because there's so many elephants crammed into a small space because they can't move because of all the fences that have been put up in the name of conservation in Africa. And so we can't let those animals move right now. But if we were as humans to say, you know what, those elephants are on purpose and they're coming here to do something right now. We need to take the fences down and let them walk their ley lines up into Africa again. I believe those elephants are ready to regenerate the entire soil water system of that planet. And when Africa goes green again, when the Sahara turns back into the, this massive grassland that it was just you know 1,500 years ago, uh, Romans took over a massive grassland, not the Sahara Desert. And so the northern African, Alexandria was the biggest city in the Roman Empire, is right in the middle of the Sahara Desert. That was the biggest agricultural center that fed Europe for, for centuries, and it wasn't a desert. Well, that grassland, that big giant savanna that covers vast, you know, millions and millions of hectares is about to regrow if the elephants can march. And so Project Biome has this vision that if we allow the breaks off that we've put on her species, they know how to take us back into this generative moment as a planet so that she could take the biggest, deepest breath she's ever taken. And that North Africa and the rest of the deserts of Saudi Arabia, Siberia, it's one third of the planet that goes into desert when the Sahara exists. When it goes back into grasslands, Saudi Arabia, Siberia, up into Northern China, all of that goes green. And when that goes green, the whole planetary respiratory cycle kicks in and we get new life because there's so many new viruses on the planet that code for new genetic possibilities. We're going to see the, the explosion of biodiversity on levels we cannot imagine. And that's what's happened after every single great extinction that has been ever been measured is life leaps forward. It's not knocked down and like somehow crippled. It is actually empowered to do something much greater, much more beautiful, much more diverse, and therefore much more intelligent and beautiful. And that's that's what's about to happen on the planet. And maybe and we can stay. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, it sounds like that's going to happen with or without us. So that's we right. are at this point, this point fork of in the road, a point of beauty. 
without, obviously we've touched on so many amazing things today, but we are getting into something that's obviously very close to your heart, which is regenerative farming. Would you be able to, for the audience that doesn't really know about what this stuff means, kind of how it applies day to day, where we've gone really, really wrong and how we need to get things back to the way it was? Yeah, so the last 100 years has seen farmers and physicians trained in the same science, believing that there's some drug or some chemical that's going to make our lives better and easier and healthier, more productive. And of course, every pharmaceutical drug you put a human being on, they actually become less well, not better. By the time you're on four to six medications, there's a drug-drug interaction that's making your biology work less well. Mm-hmm. And it's not unusual for our elders now to be on 13, 20 drugs in, in the Western medical society. And so they have so many drug-drug interactions going once they pass four or five drugs that they're doing more harm than good. And so that's a known phenomenon. That's publications in science have been said on that, and yet we keep doing it to people. In the same way, a farm under chemical pressure can only diminish its, its life force under every extra chemical that's added. And a typical milieu of chemicals of herbicides and pesticides on a single farm now are way outside of six. It's, it can be dozens of different chemicals used uh, over the course of a single growing system that's basically got it, the whole farmland on an ICU-like environment of treatment. And the people that are eating that food are eating death. And so they manifest literally a dis-ease at the moment that they consume this food, whether you're a cow eating the feed from the corn lot or you're a human eating the beef from that cow, like the downstream consequence of, of growing nearly dead food or food that's so depleted of its life force that it's weakened and therefore needs all the support of herbicides, pesticides, antibiotics, everything else, that life force is so low. And so that's where our current food system has become over the last hundred years. It's the same thing that will end you up in the ICU and have you on life support is because we began that in the fields in the 1950s. And so we have this whole planet now on life support and our capacity as a chemical industry is very bad at sustaining life. We can slightly manipulate the the endpoints or the symptoms of death as it emerges, but we can't stave off death. Uh, the chemicals are a divorce from nature. And so if it doesn't occur in nature, if, if billions of species over the last 4 billion years hasn't expressed a molecule, it's probably because it shouldn't, you know. And so the iterative capacity of nature to do the right thing for the encouragement of life to occur needs to become our foundation for science and therefore the chemical industry. And so we should not do anything to biology that biology hasn't developed for us. And that's that's the transition of regenerative medicine, regenerative farming, regenerative economics, regenerative political systems. Everything can Health be regenerative. System. Healthcare systems as a whole, those can all turn into a regenerative state if we trust the nature within us and the nature around us to guide us into a vitality that is natural within us. It comes from within us, not something that we're chasing outside of ourselves, not some technology that doesn't yet exist. Nature wasn't waiting for humans to come along to improve her, you know, and yet we have this belief that we're doing that. And yet now we realize every technology we tend to create divorces us further from our nature and increases the disease of being alive. And so we increase our pain, we increase our depression, our rates of every disease just keeps going up and up and up. The more technologically advanced the society, the more diseases it has. And so that's the current application of technology. But when you back up and say, what is technology? Technology is an abstraction or a creation force that's, 
or a, a physical structure coming out of the creation imagination of nature itself. And we, despite our belief that we're separate from nature, are not separate from nature. And this gets very intriguing to me. Uh, is the oil and gas companies really evil? Or are, are, were we a, a unique abstraction of nature that said, and we're going to need to cre create something that can get all this carbon dioxide above the earth. We're, we need a species that can dig deep in the earth, pump all this oil out of there and get it into a combusted state so that the earth can take a deeper breath because the next expression of life is going to be so extremely beautiful. I mean, the last time we had an extinction, we went from dinosaurs to freaking dolphins, animals, you know, mammals, humans, the whole thing. Like how, that's a pretty large leap in life force. Mm -hmm. We went from palms and ferns as the sole plants on earth to wildflowers, the dog, dog rose, dogwoods. None of that existed 55 million years ago because there hadn't been enough stress and opportunity for new expression through the virome before that extinction. So now we have even more pent up opportunities here. And so for all of our destruction, nature has used us to create the biggest potential she's ever had on this planet. And so I don't know if we should even have judgment of like the humans are bad and we act like a cancer and we have all these negative connotations to who we are. We may be the very thing called in to take life force into a completely new journey on this planet. Yeah. And we could change everything to stay in play with that potential, to stay and see what life wants to do after the knee is taken off the proverbial neck of this planet. I like that theory. And my, my next and I guess final question was going to be around, you know, I think a lot of conversations that are urging people to change their behavior isn't being very effective because people, we live in a very convenient world where we want everything accessible to us. And I guess being human in many ways is being quite selfish and we're more concerned with what's immediately happening around us than what's going to be happening in a hundred years, even though we can sort of conceptualize it, it doesn't seem to change people's behavior. But some of what I listen to from podcasts that you've been on is talking about shifting the focus to the biological sense that we can then become the best possible humans we could be and that we can evolve in this way that's far beyond our comprehension, that's not relying on pharmaceuticals or chemical stuff. So does that make any sense? Would you be able to kind of explain a little bit about how that could look? Yeah, so the technologies we create, since we are part of nature and we are creating, can either be used for the abstract application of fear, guilt, and shame, or it can be used for reconnection and to the expression of beauty. And if we look through human history, I would say that it's pretty obvious what we've brought into reality that hasn't done harm, and it's our art. Your voice as a singer, songwriter, vocalist, has never done any harm it is a perfect truth. And so when you are creating in that space, you are giving something into the vibration of this universe that didn't exist moments before and you are making it exist. You are in your God force, you are in your birth force. As a woman, you sing and you bring something new into this universe. And I think that's when we will reach our full potency when we realize we are all capable of expressing the full force of the feminine archetype within us. I can birth something new every single day, every single millionth of a second. I'm rebirthing my body from vacuum space because of the vibration of the quantum field. I'm disappearing and reappearing every millionth of a second. I keep showing up in my life force as a creative entity. 
and I can bring forth a song on the guitar. I could go and make a piece of art right now. I can go build yet another company. I can go start another nonprofit. I can go into a new intimate experience with somebody. I can go, you know, create another being, you know, it's like, there is so much feminine force within us. And to say feminine is to be that creative energy. And that's what we can start to contribute back to this universe now. If we decide to make that change from fear, ownership, scarcity, to gifting and creativity as our mode of communication with the universe, the information stream that's going to open up to us so instantaneously is going to be so bonkers powerful. And we will be communicating, I believe, not just with other humans better, we're going to be communicating with life throughout the cosmos in just the next few years. It's happening right now. We are, the doors are coming off. All this, you know, release of information around extraterrestrial and contact all this from the government right now. It's because it's happening at such a rate they can no longer hide it. It's constantly happening that humans are connecting to the intelligence of the entire universe second by second more potently because we are becoming more and more present because we are dying as a species. And so every breath becomes more precious and we are taking slower, deeper breaths. I didn't, I think I lived 30 years of my life without ever hearing the word mindfulness. I think I heard that thing 13 times just on the train and subway <laughs> systems of London today. When did mindfulness become part of our lexicon? When did mindfulness become some part of our, uh, I was asked this morning, like, what, what is the process or practice that you do when you're traveling so much to stay healthy? If I had heard that sentence like 10 years ago, I'd be like, practice? Like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I don't even know. I, I mean, I practice medicine, but, you know, yeah. like, we have this new lexicon. And mm -hmm. it's because we are becoming more present because we have to, because we're becoming more desperate because we are so divorced from our life force vibration. And so we are spending a lot of time tuning in right now. And for all that tuning in, what we're going to create next is going to be very powerful. And so AI, as an example of this, let's let's pick something that gets talked about a lot the last few years of 5G. So 5G has been said like this is a scourge. So there's a large part of the population that believes this is like the greatest breakthrough because now I can search my Instagram even faster and I can download web pages even quicker and have access everywhere. And so thank goodness for the 5G network and thanks, thank goodness for Elon Musk and, and Starlink now because we now have... There's 30,000 satellites rushing around the world right now, you know, giving everybody 5G that didn't have it moments ago. And so then there's this huge part of humanity that's very concerned that that's going to be the death of all of us because the amount of 5G radiation that humans are, are taking into our biology right now, not to mention other life forms, could be destroying the fabric of life on the planet. And so again, good, bad, who knows? It's the application of the technology in the, in the denseness of thinking that nothing else matters than us and the convenience that we're pursuing that makes 5G dangerous. But 5G is a, a description of a microwave technology that allows information to travel. And the reason why a large segment of humanity is very concerned about 5G instead of 4G, because 5G is now in a small enough wavelength that it's at the same resonance frequencies that much of the communication happens in, in a human cell. So we're now interfering with the very language of human life at the cellular level. Well, that's a problem if it's done without cognition or done without intent or awareness. So if we're unawares and we're just beaming this stuff out, yeah, we're probably rapidly increasing the amount of cancer, heart attacks, blood clots, everything else on the planet for all the 5G rate. Oh, actually, 
We have evidence of that. And in the last year, we've had more heart attacks than ever before in history. Cancers, blah, blah, blah. And so the doors are coming off of human biology. Is it just because of 5G? Is it because of the vaccines? There's lots of different theories out there of what human intervention are we doing to disrupt biology to this degree? It's probably all of it because we're doing it mindlessly. We're doing it just for convenience. We're doing it out of fear of something attacking us. Mm-hmm. But those same technologies, when you become cognizant and mindful and aware, suddenly become the most potent healers on the planet. 5G network imbued with the right resonance frequencies that can now communicate in human biology, we've known since the 1960s which frequencies destroy cancer cells. And so tomorrow we could turn on the Starlink grid that now covers the blankets the entire Earth in 5G frequencies with anti-cancer messages. And we could destroy the whole cancer epidemic in a moment. Why don't we? Because we're unaware of the possibility of beauty within the technology that we hold. It's only being utilized for military and, you know, uh, convenience methodologies because those are the two things that create empire, that create security, that create wealth. Military's clout and convenience are the whole mechanisms of Western civilization or colonialism as a whole. So it's really about the intention behind it. It's the intent behind the technology that makes it destructive, extractive, or creative and beautiful. We're moments away from changing our mindset and our mindfulness for the technologies that we apply. And I believe we're being gifted technologies that can make us very potent creators on this planet. CRISPR is an interesting one here. We're creating vaccines against the virome as if it's a bad thing. But that CRISPR technology that was just given to humanity just a few years ago that technology could be the, the the tool that we utilize to accelerate biodiversification of wildflowers and you know the, the world around us and its beauty. And so reapplying these technologies away from the fear paradigm of we need to kill and, and be in, in the antibiotic, antiviral man, mindset to, oh my gosh, we need to be pro-viral. We need to create as much genetic potential for the new humanity as possible because lying in us, I believe, is genetic code that is currently not being expressed because we live in this fractured state from our reality. We live behind a veil of emotions and trauma that we keep expressing and therefore the original genome of our species is not being expressed correctly. We have a damaged genetics. And as we come into resonance and we realize that we can start to re-express it, it may not be a double helix DNA that's within us. That may be the damaged structure of, of the human expression right now. Our electromagnetic field that we might call a soul is likely able to hold a much more complex crystalline structure than, a, than a, the simple double helix. And we could end up with you know, a triple braided quadrihelix so that you got 12 strands of nucleotides in, inside of that same structure. And then what body will we build? What beauty will we express? How much light can I hold in that DNA strand such that I would become a better antenna for the beauty of the universe, the expression of the cosmos, the expression of my full potential? And so that's, I think, where we're at right now is can we really catastrophically apply our creative force through the technologies that are being given to us right now can we become a more complete version of ourselves? Oh, well, I think that's a beautiful place <laughs> to end. Zach, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I could listen to you for hours. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It's always a joy to be present with another human being. Thank you for being present with me. Thank you all of you that listened into this conversation to be part of this reality. The space-time continuum doesn't matter when you hear this. You are part of our now right now. So welcome to right now. Glad you're alive. Thank you. 
just a reminder that Farmer's Footprint are very kindly giving you the chance to win free access to the Saturn Returns course, as well as a one-on-one call with me. And to enter this, it's £25 for each entry. And you can use the link in the show notes. And all of that money goes as a donation to Farmer's Footprint. So wishing you luck if you want to enter. And thank you so much for listening as always. And remember, you are not alone. Goodbye.